We have basically been looking at, during our time in the book of Hebrews, we've basically been looking at all that it took for God to make us a part of his family. And what did it take for God to adopt followers of Christ as his children? If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been adopted into his family to be his eternal child. It required something that could purify us from our sins for all of eternity. And this letter to the Hebrews has been explaining how it is possible that Jesus, after making purification for sins, then was able to sit down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After sacrificing himself on the cross, he sat down. Nothing more needed to be done. I really appreciate Pastor Jeff's handling of the first section of chapter 9 of, of this letter to the Hebrews. That's not an easy thing to do for, for one pastor to step into the series that another pastor is doing. And, and I think he dealt well with explaining the pieces of the tabernacle and the temple. And, and I most appreciate his connection, the connection that he made when he pointed out to a common thread throughout the description of these articles and God's in, uh, instruction on building his tabernacle, his place of meeting, his tent of meeting with his people. And that was this. God did not say, worship me however you see fit. Make this meeting place what you want it to be. Make it your expression of what it means to have a relationship with me. He didn't say that. He said, make it exactly as I tell you to make it. As we've learned in Hebrews, it was actually based on a pattern, an actual tabernacle in the heavens. Everything was required to be made according to God's specifications. Everything was required to be done in a certain way in order for the blood and the smoke of the, of the incense and the, and the sacrifice to cover over the sins of God's people so that those sins could be passed over during the time of the Old Covenant or as we know it as the Old Testament. This is very different from what many false teachers are proclaiming today. I, and I've shared with you before, basically the way that you can spot false teachers or, or, or man-based religion is that they tend to bring God very low. They tend to bring God down to a point where he can be reached. And they tend to elevate man very high, uh, kind of downplaying our sinfulness, downplaying our separation, downplaying the consequence of our sin to the point where basically through God's you know, fatherly love and our best efforts, the two can touch. And there's no need for a gospel. Now, I usually don't call out these false teachers, but I was, I was convicted recently by a message by Vody Bachman where he's like, name it, call it out. Your people need to know who these people are. I just want to share with you a tweet from a pastor named Stephen Furtick. He's pastor of Elevation Church that has over 27,000 members based in North Carolina. 
This is his statement about the gospel. Following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. The elevation of sinful man. What would it be like to see you, the you that God sees? Well, you learned last week that part of the symbolism The reason for the smoke filling the Holy of Holies was to cover over, in a sense to say, we have to have a sacrifice that keeps God from seeing us as we really are in our sinfulness. I I wouldn't share this. You can't take a tweet out of context. The person means what they're tweeting. It's very reflective of this man's teaching to his 27,000 members and, and so many others that listen to these messages online. But it's not reflective of the gospel. This is, what God, this is the message that God sent out over almost 2,000 years ago. It's this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why? Because God needed to make us into something other than what we were. God describes our process of following Jesus in this way. From Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does that sound like following Jesus doesn't change you into something else? Praise God that following Jesus changes us into something else. Or as verse 4 says in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved. It requires a grace of the gospel for sinful man to walk in the presence of the holy God. It takes on God's part a lot to bring nasty sinners like us into his family. And he accomplished what needed to be done Through Jesus, his final sacrifice. From there, the saying is still true. God loves us the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. So the previous portion of this passage, which Pastor Jeff closed, uh, covered last week, this previous portion closes with these statements on the ineffectiveness of the old covenant to change God's people into new creations, where we read in Hebrews 9, the second half of verse 9 through 10, according to this arrangement, meaning the old covenant, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, these animal sacrifices and all of this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
What an interesting statement, the time of reformation, which describing Jesus' work on the cross. When he says it cannot, these sacrifices could not perfect the conscience, this is another way of saying cannot achieve salvation through and through. I can approach God with integrity. I can say, God, look at me through and through because God changes me through and through from the inside out. And this leads us, this problem that the law and the tabernacle and the sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This leads us into our verses here this morning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. What an interesting summary statement. The good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For in every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, he's describing what Moses did back in Exodus chapter 24. He he sprinkled all the people with the, the water and the blood saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's a lot of verses. You guys are thinking, J.D., you're not going to make that 1 o'clock game. But there's some strong themes that pop up in each one of these sections. We see an eternal redemption, an eternal inheritance, and an eternal forgiveness. That is what was required. And that is what Christ made possible. Rather than trusting your works or your true inner person, that inner child... Now, that inner child is a sinner. Trust Christ for your eternal redemption. He says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, he, he, he replaced all that old covenant stuff. 
He replaced the need for a high priest from man. He came as our high priest. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then he he explains... That's what the four tells us. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So remember the old covenant kind of tried to purify from the outside in, from the flesh in. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences, our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God from the inside out. Recall that the original tabernacle was based on a pattern, the one in heaven. And Jesus' work on the cross accomplished redemption. This is what verse 11 is talking about, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now the main statement says, if you want to boil it down from verses 11 through 14, because there's a lot of, dependent clauses mixed up in these verses here as he's qualifying what he's saying. You could read it this way. But when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, you remember the Papa John's uh, commercial statement? Better ingredients, better pizza, right? So if you start out with better stuff, you're going to end up with a better product. In the same way, our redemption starts with better ingredients than the old covenant, this new covenant relationship. Jesus passed through a greater and more perfect tent. Jesus did what he did in his redeeming work once for all in the holy places. Jesus accomplished all this by means of his own blood, better stuff, as he describes it. And well, in the same way we experience a far better result, as we're told in verse 14, God is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The dead works that we are purified from is any attempt to save ourselves by our own works. As I mentioned in verse 9, we were told that the works of the old covenant with the tabernacle, the physical tabernacle, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But here we see that, that God is able to purify our conscience through Christ. Meaning working on us from the inside in, out. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll read back over that new covenant promise that we live in with God today through Christ. But a major goal of following Christ in the new covenant is that we are changed all the way through. Do you remember this summary statement when we spent time in the book of 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. 
He works from the inside out. He purifies from the inside out. And he does that by indwelling us with his Holy Spirit. But he cannot start that relationship between us and him unless we trust in Christ's sacrifice alone. And what has he accomplished? Eternal redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? Right? Think about, I don't know how many of you guys have found yourself short on cash. I've never done this, but... And you take something over to a pawn shop. It's got to be something of value. They're not going to give you what it's va- what it's worth, by the way. But and, and and you pawn that thing. And so you find yourself, hopefully, I mean, this usually this is why they have stuff to sell. Um, the hope is you're going to go back, and you're going to take the money that you owe for it, and you're going to redeem it. You're going to pay what is necessary in order to get it back. Christ paid what was necessary to accomplish our eternal redemption. To have us back for all of eternity. Think of a a person, a man or woman, that has put themselves in so much debt that they're never going to work their way out of it. They are just a slave from that point forward. This happened a lot in olden times, indentured servitude. But a father comes along and says, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to adopt them as my child. I'm going to pay that debt, and they're going to live in my home, but not as a slave. They're going to live there as my son. They're going to live there as my daughter. Jesus did what only he could do. He made the sacrifice that only, could only, only he could accomplish our eternal redemption that could bring us into God's family out of our slavery of debt. The old covenant pointed to him and only purified outwardly. But Christ does far better eternally from the inside of those who trust in him as Savior. And I hope that you have done that. And I hope that you are ignoring the enemy when he says, you don't belong to God. He hasn't made you his child. This is intended to reinforce for these readers, you have been redeemed with an eternal redemption by a new father. You've been adopted as his child Secondly, being a part of God's forever family means that you trust Christ for your eternal inheritance. Read that here. Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then he gets off talking about a will, a last will and testament, right? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So why does our author start talking about a last will in testament? The only reason why we call it a last will in testament is that the last one that the person made is the one that counts. All right? So he's talking about a will, a testament. Recall that in biblical understanding, the term covenant 
and or will or testament are, are synonymous. An agreement, an agreed relationship of inheritance, an agreed relationship of, of paternity, of, of fatherhood. You could rename the Old Testament and the New Testament Old Covenant and New Covenant. So we see this as the author switches very easily from talking about old and new covenants into old and new wills or testaments. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember how he quoted the prophecy of the new covenant that was coming that we now live in with God? He quoted this back in Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we know that God is able to accomplish this by the indwelling Holy Spirit, changing us from the inside out. And they shall not teach, he continues, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is is God's last will and testament. His last final covenant with his people. You know, when a, I looked up these terms, okay? So, so when a will is written, the testator, okay? The testator is the one who is giving testament saying, I want my property to go to these people. All right? And, and so, but what has to happen in order for that property to actually get passed to those people? The testator has to pass away why he's talking about here that that a will uh where a will is involved the death of the one who made it must be established so god himself made a final new covenant a final will and testament well you also have a mediator or an executor of that will that's the person who will ensure that the will or the testament is carried out but wait we're told in verse 15 therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant speaking of jesus so jesus both is the mediator of the covenant but he's also the one that had to die in order for the covenant to take place It's hard to understand when one person is filling all of these roles. But I appreciate something that F.F. Bruce says. He says, all analogies from ordinary life must be defective when they are applied to one, to him who rose from the dead. All analogies from ordinary life must be defective when they are applied to him who rose from the dead. And is thus, speaking of Christ, able personally to secure for his people the benefits which he died to procure for them. So how is Jesus able to make his will, die for his will, so his will can be carried out, and then step in and say, okay, I'm the mediator of this will. You've got to be God yourself. You've got to be able to resurrect, to carry out what you promised. Do you see why we can confidently proclaim Jesus Christ is everything? Jesus Christ is everything. 
He is the testator, the one who must die for his eternal inheritance to be bequeathed. He is the mediator of the covenant or the will. He is the atoning sacrifice for his sins, for all the sins previously passed over during the first covenant, allowing the beneficiaries to qualify for their inheritance. Think again about that person who's redeemed out of slavery out of that slavery of debt and made a child. They're adopted into the family of great wealth. And of course, the adopted child is made an heir of all of that wealth. The largest part of that inheritance is the promised unhindered relationship with the father that adopted them. And it's an eternal inheritance that we've received. Romans 8 verses 16 through 17 tells us the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And then it says this, and fellow heirs with Christ. So when it comes to the reading of the will, who the person that died is also mediating it, he's also pulling his brothers and sisters around and saying, I can't wait for you to hear what I bequeath to you. My brothers, my sisters, fellow heirs. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God is confirming his relationship with you by his Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8.16 is talking about. God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. And Jesus Christ has secured your eternal inheritance of unfettered relationship with God. Praise the Lord. So being part of God's forever family thirdly means that you trust Christ for your eternal forgiveness. That's what it takes. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Then he goes into describing this picture in in Exodus 24 when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people and, and just to insert in here if you read in Exodus 24 the people said all that you have read we will do no they didn't it goes on he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people. Hyssop is a plant kind of like lavender. You know, it's long and it's got buds, you know, strings of buds on it and they would use it and and he mixed the blood and water together and he he was sprinkling this on the people and, 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 um, and saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the blood Uh, With the blood, both the tent, meaning that tabernacle, and all the vessels used in worship, sanctifying them. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That, That just kind of that side note statement of fact that is huge, eternally huge, spans 
Old and New Covenant, Old and New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, so we're kind of getting into the mind of the readers as we picture this inauguration of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And it is christened with the blood sacrificed by an animal. And the scene in verse 24, every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. There's blood of calves and goats involved. And he's saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And we, as we recalled back two weeks ago, this is why Jesus said in the upper room, in his last supper with his disciples, this cup is the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. N inaugurating the new covenant, letting them know that it was going to be christened in his blood. Why is it that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? According to Leviticus 17.11, a creature's life is in its blood. I mean, imagine as they're sacrificing that animal, as they take that knife and they slit its throat, what happens as that blood is draining out? The life is slowly disappearing from that creature. And the idea is their life, as the blood flows out of them, their life is leaving them. And that blood then represents the life that was poured out from that animal. Pretty much if anything loses enough blood, there's not going to be any more life in it, right? The sacrifice of a life is what is required and represented in the use of its blood. Let me ask you this question. Here's a quiz for you. When was the first shedding of blood for the nation of Israel? We know that God sacrificed an animal in order to give Adam and Eve their skins, but they weren't the nation of Israel yet. We know that God led Abraham up a mountain, provided a ram for him to sacrifice. We, we, we know of that. We know of Noah after the flood. He sacrifices an animal. He makes sacrifice as a part of the Noahic covenant, but they're not the nation of Israel yet. They were the nation of Israel in which God had them sacrifice an animal for themselves at the Passover. When they marked the door of their house so that the angel of death would pass over their house. And they celebrated the Passover every year after that. Do you realize that the passing over of sin was taking place constantly throughout the Old Testament? We read about this in Romans 3, talking about those who, um, you know that verse 23 talks about how the, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a, as a sacrifice in his blood, by his blood, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Catch this. 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had been passing over all the sins of those Old Testament saints. They weren't achieving forgiveness through these sacrifices. They were achieving the same thing that they started that night in Egypt, that death was passing over them. Separation from God was passing over them. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, meaning in sacrificing Christ, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 9, regarding the Old Testament saints, a death has occurred that redeems Old Testament saints from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What death had occurred? The death of Jesus. All of those deaths of those animals had not redeemed them. A death has it occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God had been passing over their sins, waiting for the death of his final perfect sacrifice in Jesus. Their sins were being passed over to show, as Romans 3 tells us, God's righteousness at the present time in sacrificing Christ. God brought death or I'm sorry, sin brought death. It, it, sin brought the end of life and separation between us and God. Both in the old and the new covenant, they were both inaugurated by blood because the ultimate issue was our need for the forgiveness of sins. And that can only take place through death because that's the penalty for sin. Trust Christ for your eternal forgiveness. It was necessary for our eternal forgiveness that there be a sacrifice of an eternal being. For our eternal forgiveness, it was necessary that there be the sacrifice of an eternal being. Guess who that was? The only God-man that ever walked this earth. Jesus. Think again about that adopted child. Adopted out of a life of slavery because of their indebtedness. Adopted into an inheritance of an unending relationship with a wealthy father. Let me tell you the backstory of this situation, okay? The backstory is that this child was the father's child originally. But he had rebelled against his father's loving provision. So the son arranged to be emancipated, to emancipate himself from his family and from his father. And he went into a life of crime. He committed crimes that were so heinous, even murder. And he was captured and he was sentenced to death. And he was found again by his father as he sat on death row. In order to redeem him, to bring him back into the family, the penalty of the son's crime needed to be paid. And so the father trades his perfect son who had never done anything wrong 
to die in his wicked son's place. And the son is redeemed. And he's brought back into the perfect relationship with his father. He's given a forever inheritance. And all his wrongdoing has been forgiven. Because the penalty was paid. You know, the world wants to claim, hey, we're all God's children. We're all God's children. This is true to some extent. But we have pawned ourselves to sin. We have indentured ourselves to death. And we have landed on death row from our murderous deeds. It's not God that separates us from himself. It is our sin. It is the penalty that we, are, that we owe for our sin that has separated us from God. And as a consequence of our sin, we've been separated from him and his perfect plan for us. But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are redeemed. You are reinstated as his heir, his child. You are forgiven. Because Christ died for your sins. And you have received what he has done for you. He found you again sitting on death row and he sends his only son to do what only he could do. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So that the triune God might be glorified and that you might be brought back into relationship with him. And for you, you may have been sitting in a chair all these years thinking, I'm working off my sins here. I'm paying for what I did this week. It doesn't work that way. Years and centuries of sacrificing of animals could not pay, could not accomplish forgiveness. All it did was pass over their sin. But the perfect sacrifice has been made. And all that God calls for from us is to recognize my sins put him on the cross. And he did all that needed to be done so that I can have a relationship with you. And to give God the glory in that way. So the truth is, is even though it's his church, even though it's his body gathering together, Sitting here and thinking that it earns a relationship with him is an insult to him. It basically says, ah, I don't need Jesus. All I need is to just sprinkle a little church on my life. That doesn't do it. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation and praise God if you have. Praise God every day. That's the only reason why you wake up and walk in an eternal relationship with him. Let's bow our heads together.